We are continuing this evening in a series, a sermon series, in the uh, book of Hosea. If you want to turn there, uh, we'll be going there, page 754. Uh, In a little while, we'll be reading our passage. So, um, Hosea was a prophet in about somewhere in the 8th century, so 700, 750 to 720 B.C. And he uh, was a prophet mostly to the northern kingdom of Israel. So I thought tonight I'd begin by giving you a little bit of history about what the northern kingdom of Israel was like. Um, In 731 B.C., the northern kingdom was established when Jeroboam rebelled against the reigning king of God's people, the grandson of David, who sat on the throne in Jerusalem. Jeroboam successfully divided the kingdom and established the northern kingdom, which is from then on called Israel as opposed to Judah in the south. Having established his state politically, Jeroboam faced a big problem. What to do with worship? Because for the people of God, the center of worship was in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem was a temple. In the temple was the very presence of God dwelling among his people. But to go to Jerusalem from the northern kingdom would be like a Civil War Confederate soldier going to church in Washington, D.C. on a Sunday morning. It just, it would be crazy. So what What did Jeroboam do? Well, in his wisdom, as we see in uh, 2 Kings, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam formed two golden calves. He set them up in two places of worship, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And he said, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He said, You no longer need to go to Jerusalem. You could worship God in these ways as well. And so the northern kingdom started on a journey of self-determined worship into idolatry. They worshiped the golden calves. And as the nation continued and the kings followed in these footsteps, they added to the golden calves the worship of the Baals, the, the idols of the Canaanite peoples around them. They did not worship as God commanded, but instead they determined their own way of worship. So fast forward about 200 years or so, and we find the nation of Israel steeped in idolatry. But it has a new problem as well, and that is that it is in dire straits politically. The growing power of the Assyrian Empire to the north is squeezing them. It's exposing their vulnerability. And it makes them wonder, where does our security as a nation come from? And so, according to, again, Isaiah 7, 1 Kings 16, the king of Israel at that time, Pekah, ran to a number of other smaller nations nearby and said, let's form a coalition. Let's stand up against the bully of Assyria by by banding together. One of the countries that they went to was Judah, the southern kingdom. But the king of Judah said, no way. No way. Assyria is way too big. I'm not going to join a coalition against them. 
And so Pekah, you know, tried to invade Judah. And, and so Judah ran to, lo and behold, Assyria and said, hey, will you protect us from these people who are trying to invade us? Both Israel and Judah, in the face of a dire political situation, did not trust God or seek him for help. But instead, they chose a realpolitik approach of alliances with other nations to provide for their national security. These patterns in the northern kingdom showed deeply held convictions that at its root revealed a pride. Pride that was shown in their brazen disregard for God's instructions on how he was to be worshipped. Blatantly violating even the most basic of the Ten Commandments to make no idols or fashion no image to worship. Pride shown in the desperate maneuvers to manage their political situation, to grasp at security through alliances, disregarding God who had over and over and over again saved them when they trusted in him. This is the story of the northern kingdom up to the point of Hosea. But I'll tell you, this account is not simply about 8th century B.C. Israel. Because I think it's also about us. I think we, far too often and more often than we dare to admit, live with a great disregard for God, for a pride in ourselves. We brazenly presume that we know better than God how to worship Him. We trust in religious ritual and man-made practices And when we are faced with danger or a place where our security seems at risk, we run to all sorts of other things, all sorts of pragmatic alliances and partnerships to take care of ourselves, thinking that it's up to us, that we have the power to do it. These are expressions of pride that we are ultimate in the world and that God is there to serve us. And our passage today dives into how God responds when we exhibit this kind of pride. So let's read it. Hosea chapter 5. It says this. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread over Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. And now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With, with their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord. But they, shall, they will not find him for he is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. That for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. 
Israel shall become a desolation in, an, in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is pressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after Phil. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Pray with me, please. Lord, these are hard words. Lord, I pray tonight that you would help us. uh, Lord, to have ears that will hear and hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that my words would be yours. Lord, and that by your Holy Spirit, your word would speak to all of our hearts tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does God respond to this kind of pride? We're going to look at this passage. It's kind of got two sections. Verses 1 through 7 is the first one. Verses 8 through 14 is the second section. And what we see is that uh, in the first one, it's God responding to presumptuous religion. And the second part shows God's response to presumptuous pragmatism. So let's start by looking at verses 1 through 7 together. We'll see that God will bring wrath and ruin upon presumptuous religion. Starting in verse 1, God is saying to his people, listen up. Listen up, all of you. The kings, the priests, all the people. Listen up from Tabor to, uh, what is it, uh, Mizpah. And maybe another place, depending on how you translate that last phrase. Uh, God says, listen up, all of you. And the last phrase could be translated literally, I am chastisement to you. I am coming to discipline my people. Why? Well, in verses 3 and 4, we see a restatement of what we've seen in Hosea over and over again. God knows his people. He knows them intimately like a husband knows his wife. He knows them at their worst for they've been unfaithful to him. They've gone and mucked about in the sty with the swine spiritually and politically. They're unclean and the relationship is broken. His people cannot return to him because of their sin. They're ensnared and they do not know him. And they're estranged from him. And verse 5, the first phrase, probably ought to go on, tacked on to the end of that thought in verse 4. Because it's not just their infidelity that's the problem. But it's their pride. The brazen, bald-faced rebellion. The haughty arrogance with which they have carried it out, that is so offensive. And we see in verses 6 and 7, this presumption, this arrogance, this pride, shows itself in self-determining religion. 
Why do I say that? Look at verse 6. It says, they will, with their flocks and herds, they shall go and seek the Lord. They're going to show up with these animal sacrifices thinking this is how God told us. Now God's going to respond to us. Now God's going to be there. Verse 7 adds another layer to this presumptuous religion. Because it, talk, it refers to in the second phrase, the alien children. What does that mean? Well, to worship the Canaanite, uh, the Canaanite gods of Baal, they would actually have cultic prostitutes. That to worship God would be to go in physically with these prostitutes. So they actually bore children. And so there are actually children running around as a fruit of this worship. Their self-determined worship of God produced this fruit. What you see is Israel presumptuously saying they can come to God however they want to. Offer sacrifices, local worship styles, regardless of their faithfulness. And God will answer them, so they think. Friends, the history of the church is that we are not immune to some of these impulses as well. In some traditions, the exalting of religious rituals and rites express this pride. So it is seen in trusting in the baptism that I had as an infant. Or thinking that because I go regularly to confession, God accepts me. Despite the actual evidence of my practical atheism during my week and my excesses on Friday or Saturday night. In other traditions, this, this can be the pride of wearing the badge of, I prayed the prayer. I made the decision. I went forward at camp. I was baptized in my church. Assuming that those events long ago, those particular rituals, are the things that give us a free pass with God, despite our disregard for God and how we pursue our careers, our relationships, or the way we handle money. Friends, not only has this been a problem in the church, but I fear it can be a problem even in our church here. My fear for Trinity Baptist is a little different. My fear for us is that we would become presumptuous about the gospel of grace without seriously considering the true state of our hearts. That pride will creep in and make us hard to the reality of our sin. That in our pursuit of doing church right, getting our theology and our Bible right, getting the gospel right, that this would build not a humble, grateful dependence on Christ, but a self-assured, arrogant, proud perspective towards others who maybe don't get it quite as right as we do. Now listen, I want us to get it right. I want us to submit to God and listen to his instruction about who he is and how we are to worship him. But if, if, if in our pursuit for that, we begin to become proud in how we do that, if we think that because we do it more right than someone else, that that's a place for us to look down upon others. What a terrible place we would be. I see pride in my own heart 
because I hear the good news of God's relentless, alluring love for me. And it's not precious to me because I think I'm doing a lot of things right in my own life. I'm, I'm a pretty decent Christian guy, I think, most of the time. And so, and so the gospel of grace is not shockingly wonderful to me. To me, that shows me that I have a pride that is blinding me to my sin, blinding me to my presumption, that but for God's grace in my life, I would be the worst sinner in the world. Professor D.A. Carson says this, Our self-centeredness is deep. It is so brutally idolatrous that it tries to domesticate God himself. In our desperate folly, we act as if we can outsmart God, as if he owes us explanations, as if we are wise and self-determining while he exists only to meet our needs. And we would rarely be so presumptuous or bold to say that about God, that God is there for us. But in our presumptuous religion, our trusting in rites and rituals, our trusting in, in events long ago, our trusting in doing church right, we see a pride, a self orientation that we can approach God however we want. And so, in these ways, we are like Israel. If you were here last week, Hosea chapter 4 is the beginning of, of like a court prosecution. God has put Israel on trial and saying, this is what I have against you. And here is the evidence. Chapter 5, it's kind of the pronouncement. It's the, therefore, here's the judgment against you. And in the face of that, Israel is sitting in the dock. And he is brazenly saying, I can do whatever I want religiously. God's still going to be there. Israel is mistaken. Verse 6 shows us that God cannot be found through this presumptuous religion. Verse 7 shows us that God will come with an active chastisement against his people. Look at verse 6 with me for a minute. Though they used means that God ordained the these, this sacrifice system, what did they find? God was not there. They could not find him. God had withdrawn himself. Oh, friends, what a terrible thing to seek God and to find that he is not there. Like a cheating husband arriving home with flowers in his hand expecting to be welcomed home and finding an empty home, an empty bed. All the picture frames removed. No evidence of the relationship left. God is gone. He has left the building he has withdrawn from them and he cannot be placated by mere religious ritual or shallow repentance. Verse 7, the last phrase points to this, to an active sense. If God's withdrawal is a passive sense of his discipline, he, there's an active sense too that he will come and devour. It's a notoriously difficult phrase to translate. But if nothing else, it seems clear that there is this devouring effect 
that like a plague of locusts through a field, God's wrath will come, God's judgment will come upon his people. And the only thing that will be left is stubble and chaff. The deceit of pride is that we can domesticate God and that he will be there no matter how we approach him. God will have none of it. He will not allow himself to be domesticated. Listen to this. It is because his love for his people is so great that he will bring ruin to them rather than allow them to continue unchecked in their pride. He will bring a devouring judgment, a chastisement as a final call to turn, to turn away from these other things, to turn back to him and to find him again. And so we must ask ourselves, when we feel like God has withdrawn from us, when we feel deep, abiding frustration in our spiritual lives, we have to at least ask the question, God, is there pride in how I am coming to you? Is the struggle that I am experiencing the fruit of pride and what it's done to my relationship with you? Are my present struggles a result of the Lord's loving ruin of my presumptuous heart? So, for Israel, God's response to their presumptuous religion is wrath and ruin. And as we look into the second half pages, uh, verses 8 through 14, we will see that he will respond to presumptuous pragmatism with the same. Israel's pride reared its head in presumptuous pragmatism. Look in verse 13 with me. Here we see part of the story that I told you at the beginning. All the way back to the book of Exodus, when Israel became an actual nation for the first time, God had called his people to see him as the God who would protect them. He was to be the warrior for them. He would fight their battles for them. They were called simply to trust him and to obey. And in these things, no one could stand against God and his people. Not Egypt. Not Sihon. Not Og. Not the Philistines. Not the Moabites. Not the Edomites. Not Assyria. Nobody could stand against God and his people. And God said, simply trust me. And I will be your warrior. I will be your protector. I will be the one to, to give you security. Israel was simply called to trust in him. But in the pressure cooker of the political reality, we saw both Judah and Israel ran not to God, but to Assyria and to the great king for help. All of this intrigue, making alliances with pagan nations, when the God who had delivered them from Egypt stood ready to come to their aid and stand as their protector. Why would they do this? Three words. Presumptuous, irreligious, pragmatism. 
presumptuous because they thought it's up to me to take care of this problem. I am the one with both the power and the responsibility to solve my political problem. Irreligious because they excluded God from the solution. God cannot or will not intervene in this situation. And so they acted like God wasn't there at all. And pragmatically, because they they thought, how can I manage this problem? Well, let me look at how the world around me does it. What is going to work in this situation? What do the other nations do when they're squeezed like this? Well, this is what they do. They form alliances. They become vassal states. They try to appeasement and, and defiance. They go back and forth. This presumptuous, irreligious pragmatism is profoundly dishonoring to God. It is a betrayal by God's people of the loyalty that God demanded and asked for. And it was also foolishness. To ignore the power of the creator of the world? To get into an alliance with the shady trustworthiness of Assyria? It didn't take long, maybe 10 years from this point. For people to see that it wasn't going to work very well. That Assyria was not a safe place. And that there was no security there. For Assyria turned on both Israel and Judah. As we see at the end of verse 13. There is no cure there. There is no healing balm for that wound. Well, how can we be like this? Let me put before you the question of our financial security. How do we think about our money? Let's run it through the paradigm I just asked. Presumptuous, irreligious, pragmatic. Do we think that a financial problem is something that we can and should be able to handle in our own human wisdom and power? Do we think that God can and will intervene in our financial lives? Or do we think that that it is entirely up to us and we exclude God from ever intervening in our financial world? Do we, in the face of some kind of crisis, do we desperately seek how the world would work to try to solve our problem? Whether it be investing in a hedge fund, buying a lottery ticket, Buying gold, whatever it is, doing these things, but not seek God in the midst of it. Not ask God to take care of us in this. Let me press it a little further. Do we enter into partnerships with other people who have no goal but to make the most money so that we can try and take care of our financial situation? Do we play games with credit cards? Shell games try and cover over our debt. Do we hoard our money in savings and bonds and 401ks and so that we can take care of ourselves? Do I spend more time thinking about those things than I do in prayer or reading my Bible, thinking and inviting God into my financial world? Now, let me step back for a minute. God tells us a lot about money in the Bible. 
and he tells us that he is able to provide for all of our needs. He tells us that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He tells us that he loves us like a father and he will not give us stone when we ask him for bread. He also tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil and that we are called to be shrewd stewards of the money that we have to invest in eternal, not temporal things. There's a lot of really good practical wisdom in the scriptures about how to handle financial crises that is good. Out there, Larry Burkett, Ron Blue, Crown Financial, these are all great things for you to know about and to avail yourself to understand and to think biblically and Christianly about how we handle our money. But listen to me. It will all be for naught if our fundamental approach is a presumptuous pragmatism that says we must save ourselves for God won't. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 6. He says, don't be anxious about the very basics of life, what you eat and drink, what you will wear. He says the Gentiles, people who don't know God, they run after these things. They are consumed by finding the solution and the security on their own. But Jesus says, but you have a heavenly father who knows what you need. Therefore, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Just as Israel ought to have sought God to protect and provide for their national security. So we ought to seek God to protect and provide for our financial security. And you know what? If you're sitting here tonight and money is not your deal, it's not your issue, it's not your thing, maybe it's something else instead. Maybe it's your academic career. Trying to get through the next hoop, the next level. Watching your grade point average desperately. Trying to impress the right people to get in. Position yourself for the next stage up the ladder. Maybe it's your desire to be married and to have a family. Maybe it's as simple as you're like walking into college and, and having friends and thinking, how am I going to make friends? What ways am I going to do that? Friends, it's so easy for us to be like Israel in all these different areas. And how does God respond to presumptuous pragmatism? In verses 8 through 10, we see the severity and urgency of the situation. Like a watchman standing in the tower, looking out into the desert and seeing the approaching army and sounding the warning bell. Here it comes, here it comes. So God is saying, sound the warning bell, for I am coming. I am coming to Ephraim because they run after. It says in this, it says filth. Filth isn't the right word. Ephraim is run after nonsense. It's, it, it's a nonsense syllable. It's like running after yada, 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 yada. Running after foolishness, vanity. They're running after that. And Judah has become so corrupt that they disregard even a basic standard of righteousness. How to set a boundary line and then not to move it for your own gain. And if they can't keep that boundary line... How in the world are they going to keep God's moral and spiritual boundary lines and instructions? 
So God is coming against them. Verse 10, we see that when he comes, he will come like a flood. And the flood here, the picture is not like the slowly rising waters of the lower Mississippi and a hot summer with too much rain in the Midwest. It is instead the flash flood in the hills of Appalachia. The quick and sweeping flood that scours the ravine, leaves nothing in its wake but scattered rubble. Everything is carried away. And of course, this is what will happen to Israel. In 722, when Assyria comes, there is nothing left. There is nothing left of the nation. The people are deported. The cities are destroyed. The fields are sown. There is nothing left. And we see this coming, this this active chastisement and judgment of God coming upon them. And again, both a passive and an active sense. In verse 12, he comes like a moth. The little worms in your sweater box that eat away all summer long. So when you pull your sweater out, it's just a pile of yarn. God says, I am allowing your sin to be like that amongst you. Like dry rot in the beams in my garage at home. Like dry rot slowly eating away until that pillar becomes just a pile of dust. This is what I'm allowing sin to do in your nation, in your heart. And even more terrifying than that, verse 14. Verse 14, God's wrath comes like a lion. His active, I looked this up, I didn't know what it would be like to be attacked by a lion, so I googled it. Don't, I'm not kidding you, don't. It is, not, it is a gruesome thing. I watched one or two and I turned it off. Um, but I want you to know how serious it is. When a lion comes against a man, he has no chance, unless he has a gun, maybe lots of guns, um, or a really big gun, because that lion is so swift and so powerful. It is terrifying to be attacked by a lion. And that is God's point in using this here. You are helpless, and it is terrifying. God is like that towards those who live full of presumption and pride. This is the scope of God's wrath, and it is terrible. And this is the depth of our sin, the severity of our pride in the eyes of God. He will not be worshipped by those who come with an arrogant spirit. He will not suffer the betrayal of his beloved who turn everywhere but to him for help. He cannot let it stand. I want you to see that this is the thrust of Hosea chapter 5. This is the message that God had for Israel. And yet this central message fits into the larger context of the book. In verse 15, we see just a glimmer on the horizon, just a a whisper of this thread that we've seen in this book of Hosea, that he brings wrath and ruin upon proud religion and pragmatism so that he might bring 
and gain his people back. God judges Israel, but even the pronouncement of the judgment is an opportunity, a final opportunity to turn back to him. It's an opportunity for repentance, to acknowledge our guilt, and to seek him. That until, in the second line of verse 15, is a precious and glorious thing. We've seen this in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as well. As commentator Derek Kidner says, the whole book of Hosea is from one angle a study of what it means to turn back to God. So in this passage, the nation is confronted with two unconsidered facts. The stranglehold of its own habits and the hiddenness of God from worshipers who are insincere. And yet, his anger is that of love, not of hate. His relentless harrying of them is designed to bring them home. So friends, what do we do with this passage? How do we respond? This side of the cross of Jesus Christ, how do we think about what this says to us? First, we should see that God has demonstrated his love for proud sinners like you and me who can so easily fall into presumption, whether it be religious or pragmatic, God has loved us in a way more glorious than we could imagine. For God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The judgment upon sin that came to Israel through Assyria is nothing compared to the judgment that God poured out upon his son at the cross. Jesus bore that wrath against sin. The sin of pride, the sin of presumption, the sin of pragmatism and empty religion. Jesus was taken out of the city and abandoned in the wilderness of Golgotha. Jesus jumped in front of us to take on the onrushing wrath of God who came like a lion. And Jesus was torn apart for us. Jesus cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God withdrew his presence from his very own son. As Jesus took our sin and God's wrath upon it. God did this for us. What a great shelter, what a refuge, what a savior that we have. For all who are in Christ, there is no longer condemnation. There is no longer final judgment, but hope and joy and confidence. Hebrews 10 says that because of the blood of Christ, we can now enter. Because the blood of Christ covers us, we are now able to draw near to God with hearts and hands cleansed by this blood. And we can come near with confidence and full assurance that we will find him because of Christ. Secondly, we are to see that for those who have assurance in Christ, God may still oppose us when we fall prey to pride, to presumption, to empty religion and pragmatism, but it is not with the threat of final judgment, but with the loving hand of a father disciplining his child, the loving rebuke of a husband calling his wife back, to, back out of her waywardness. He may frustrate us when our hearts are steeped in these things, but his loving heart is to woo us back 
And he does this in Jesus. Because in Jesus, what we see is that in how he rescued us, there is power. There's power to be rescued from our pride. Jesus subverts our pride, breaking us of it by his humiliation and his humility. He resisted the temptation to take the pragmatic shortcut when the devil tempted him in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. He said over and over again, I've come not to do my will, but the will of the one who has sent me. He submitted himself to his father over and over again and trusted him. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, took on flesh and bone so that he might identify with us, taking even to the cross, this flesh and blood, bearing the punishment for our sin on that cross. And in this we find the power to be freed from our pride and our arrogance, to turn back to heartfelt seeking of God, acknowledging our guilt, to turn away from pragmatic managing to wholehearted trusting in God for all of our lives. Finally, we must also heed the call of Hebrews 3 that I read at the beginning of this service. Hosea 5, if nothing else, is a call to repentance. Hebrews 3, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We are called to examine our hearts. We are called to invite God to examine our hearts to see if this pride is in our hearts. And if you are in Christ, then the call is to see that when we see this pride, we can run to Christ. We can run to the refuge that is in the blood of Christ to turn from sin and to take hold of the grace of God that has taken hold of us, that His kindness has the power to lead us to repentance. And that his spirit is able to work in us a humble dependence that roots out arrogant pride and self-reliance. But friends, if you are not in Christ tonight, if you have seen tonight that your hope really is in some form of, pr- of presumptuous religion, some if your life is steeped in presumptuous pragmatism, then the call to you is to run to Christ for the first time. Throw yourself on His mercy. Know that the only refuge from this horrible wrath of God is the blood of Christ covering over you. Plead with God to cover you with the blood of Christ so that you may not experience His terrible wrath against sin. But instead, that that would be satisfied in Christ. Do not harden your heart today. But hear his call. Turn. Confess the futility of your religious activities. Renounce your self-reliant pragmatism. And run to the shelter that is in Christ. Let's pray. God, we see that our sin is great. And before you, it is a severe thing. 
Lord, you do not treat sin lightly, but the offense is deep and the response is strong. God, I pray tonight that your spirit would, Lord, like a searchlight, Lord, peer into the depths of our hearts to see where we may fall into pride, presumption, and how we live our lives in relationship with you. Lord, show us these things so that we may acknowledge our guilt and turn to you and seek your face. God, you are an awesome God, a holy God. Lord, we pray that it might be that the great hope that in Christ there is a refuge for us may take root in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would run to you tonight and find great comfort in that great news of the gospel. Lord, not to turn to that lightly or presumptuously, but Lord, soberly to see how wonderful your salvation is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.